Case 5. Camp of the Dog, Part 7 of John Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. John Silence by Algernon Blackwood. Case 5. Camp of the Dog, Part 7. We all went to bed early. The day had been unusually warm, and after sunset a curious hush descended on the island. Nothing was audible but that faint, ghostly singing which is inseparable from a pine wood even on the stillest day, a low, searching sound, as though the wind had hair and trailed it o'er the world. With the sudden cooling of the atmosphere, a sea fog began to form. It appeared in isolated patches over the water, and then these patches slid together, and a white wall advanced upon us. Not a breath of air stirred. The fur stood like flat metal outlines. The sea became as oil. The whole scene lay as though held motionless by some huge weight in the air, and the flames from our fire, the largest we had ever made, rose upward, straight as a church steeple. As I followed the rest of our party tentwards, having kicked the embers of the fire into safety, the advance guard of the fog was creeping slowly among the trees, like white arms feeling their way. Mingled with the smoke was the odor of moss and soil and bark, and the peculiar flavor of the Baltic, half salt, half brackish, like the smell of an estuary at low water. It is difficult to say why it seemed to me that this deep stillness masked an intense activity. Perhaps in every mood lies the suggestion of its opposite so that I became aware of the contrast of furious energy, for it was like moving through the deep pause before a thunderstorm, and I trod gently, lest by breaking a twig or moving a stone, I might set the whole scene into some sort of tumultuous movement. Actually, no doubt, it was nothing more than a result of overstrung nerves. There was no more question of undressing and going to bed than there was of undressing and going to bathe. Some sense in me was alert and expectant. I sat in my tent and waited, and at the end of half an hour or so my waiting was justified, for the canvas suddenly shivered and someone tripped over the ropes that held it to the earth. John Silence came in. The effect of his quiet entry was singular and prophetic. It was just as though the energy lying behind all this stillness had pressed forward to the edge of action. This, no doubt, was merely the quickening of my own mind, and had no other justification, for the presence of John Silence always suggested the near possibility of vigorous action, and as a matter of fact, he came in with nothing more than a nod and a significant gesture. He sat down on a corner of my ground sheet, and I pushed the blanket over so that he could cover his legs. He drew the flap of the tent after him and settled down, but hardly had he done so, when the canvas shook a second time, and in blundered Maloney. Sitting in the dark, he said, self-consciously, pushing his head inside, and hanging up his lantern on the ridgepole nail. I just looked in for a smoke, I suppose. He glanced round, caught the eye of Dr. Silence, and stopped. He put his pipe back into his pocket, and began to hum softly, that underbreath humming of a nondescript melody I knew so well and had come to hate. Dr. Silence leaned forward, opened the lantern, and blew the light out. Speak low, he said, and don't strike matches. 
listen for sounds and movements about the camp, and be ready to follow me at a moment's notice. There was light enough to distinguish our faces easily, and I saw Maloney glancing in hurriedly at both of us. Is the camp asleep? The doctor asked presently, whispering. Sangree is, replied the clergyman, in a voice equally low. I can't answer for the women. I think they're sitting up. That's for the best. And then he added, I wish the fog would thin a bit and let the moon through. Later we may want it. It's lifting now, I think, Maloney whispered back. It's over the tops of the trees already. I cannot say what it was in this commonplace exchange of remarks that thrilled. Probably Maloney's swift acquiescence in the doctor's mood had something to do with it, for his quick obedience certainly impressed me a good deal. But even without that slight evidence, it was clear that each recognized the gravity of the occasion and understood that sleep was impossible and sentry duty was the order of the night. Report to me, repeated John Silence once again, the least sound, and do nothing precipitately. He shifted across to the mouth of the tent and raised the flap, fastening it against the pole so that he could see out. Maloney stopped humming and began to force the breath through his teeth with a kind of faint hissing, treating us to a medley of church hymns and popular songs of the day. Then the tent trembled as though someone had touched it. That's the wind rising, whispered the clergyman, and pulled the flap open as far as it would go. A waft of damp air entered and made us shiver and with it came a sound of the sea as the first wave washed its way softly along the shores. It's got round to the north, he added, and following his voice came a long-drawn whisper that rose from the whole island as the trees sent forth a sighing response. The fog will move a bit now. I can make out a lane across the sea already. Hush, said Dr. Silence, for Maloney's voice had risen above a whisper, and we settled down again to another long period of watching and waiting broken only by the occasional rubbing of shoulders against the canvas as we shifted our positions, and the increasing noise of waves on the outer coastline of the island. And all over whirred the murmur of wind sweeping the tops of the trees like a great harp, and the faint tapping on the tent as drops fell from the branches with a sharp pinging sound. We had sat for something over an hour in this way, and Maloney and I were finding it increasingly hard to keep awake, when suddenly Dr. Silence rose to his feet and peered out. The next minute he was gone. Relieved of the dominating presence, the clergyman thrust his face close into mine. I don't much care for this waiting game, he whispered, but Silence wouldn't hear of my sitting up with the others. He said it would prevent anything happening if I did. He knows, I answered shortly. No doubt about that, he whispered back. It's this double business, as he calls it or else it's obsession, as the Bible describes it. But it's bad, whichever it is, and I've got my Winchester outside, ready cocked, and I brought this, too. He shoved the pocket Bible under my nose. At one time in his life it had been his inseparable companion. One's useless, and the other's dangerous, I replied under my breath, conscious of a keen desire to laugh and leaving him to choose. Safety lies in following our leader. I'm not thinking of myself, he interrupted sharply. Only if anything happens to Joan tonight, I'm going to shoot first and pray afterwards. Maloney put the book back into his hip pocket and peered out of the doorway. What is he up to now in the devil's name, I wonder? He added, going round Sangree's tent and making gestures. 
How weird he looks disappearing in and out of the fog. Just trust him and wait, I said quickly, for the doctor was already on his way back. Remember, he has the knowledge and knows what he's about. I've been with him through worse cases than this. Maloney moved back as Dr. Silence darkened the doorway and stooped to enter. His sleep is very deep, he whispered, seating himself by the door again. He's in a cataleptic condition, and the double may be released any minute now. But I've taken steps to imprison it in the tent, and it can't get out till I permit it. Be on the watch for signs of movement. Then he looked hard at Maloney. But no violence or shooting, remember, Mr. Maloney, unless you want a murder on your hands. Anything done to the double acts by repercussion upon the physical body. You had better take out the cartridges at once. His voice was stern. The clergyman went out, and I heard him emptying the magazine of his rifle. When he returned, he sat nearer the door than before, and from that moment until we left the tent, he never once took his eyes from the figure of Dr. Silence, silhouetted there against sky and canvas. And meantime, the wind came steadily over the sea and opened the mist into lanes and clearings, driving it about like a living thing. It must have been well after midnight, when a low, booming sound drew my attention. But at first the sense of hearing was so strained that it was impossible exactly to locate it, and I imagined it was the thunder of big guns far out at sea carried to us by the rising wind. Then Maloney, catching hold of my arm and leaning forward, somehow brought the true relation, and I realized the next second that it was only a few feet away. Sangree's tent! he exclaimed in a loud and startled whisper. I craned my head round the corner, but at first the effect of the fog was so confusing that every patch of white driving about before the wind looked like a moving tent, and it was some seconds before I discovered the one patch that held steady. Then I saw that it was shaking all over, and the sides, flapping as much as the tightness of the ropes allowed, were the cause of the booming sound we had heard. Something alive was tearing frantically about inside, banging against the stretched canvas in a way that made me think of a great moth dashing against the walls and ceiling of a room. The tent bulged and rocked. It's trying to get out by Jupiter, muttered the clergyman rising to his feet and turning to the side where the unloaded rifle lay. I sprang up too, hardly knowing what purpose was in my mind, but anxious to be prepared for anything. John Silence, however, was before us both, and his figure slipped past and blocked the doorway of the tent and there was some quality in his voice next minute when he began to speak that brought our minds instantly to a state of calm obedience. First, the women's tent, he said low, looking sharply at Maloney, and if I need your help, I'll call. The clergyman needed no second bidding. He dived past me and was out in a moment. He was laboring evidently under intense excitement. I watched him picking his way silently over the slippery ground, giving the moving tent a wide berth, and presently disappearing among the floating shapes of fog. Dr. Silence turned to me. You heard those footsteps about half an hour ago, he asked significantly. I heard nothing. They were extraordinarily soft, almost the soundless tread of a wild creature. But now follow me closely, he added, for we must waste no time if I am to save this poor man from his affliction and lead his werewolf double to its rest. And unless I am much mistaken... He peered at me through the darkness, whispering with the utmost distinctness. Joan and Sangree are absolutely made for one another, and I think she knows it too, just as well as he does. 
My head swam a little as I listened, but at the same time something cleared in my brain and I saw that he was right. Yet it was all so weird and incredible, so remote from the commonplace facts of life as commonplace people know them, and more than once it flashed upon me that the whole scene, people, words, tents, and all the rest of it, were delusions created by the intense excitement of my own mind somehow, and that suddenly the sea fog would clear off and the world become normal again. The cold air from the sea stung our cheeks sharply as we left the close atmosphere of the little crowded tent. The sighing of the trees, the waves breaking below on the rocks, and the lines and patches of mist driving about us seemed to create the momentary illusion that the whole island had broken loose and was floating out to sea like a mighty raft. The doctor moved just ahead of me, quickly and silently. He was making straight for the Canadian's tent, where the side still boomed and shook as the creature of sinister life raced and tore about impatiently within. A little distance from the door he paused and held up a hand to stop me. We were perhaps a dozen feet away. Before I release it, you shall see for yourself, he said, that the reality of the werewolf is beyond all question. The matter of which it is composed is, of course, exceedingly attenuated, but you are partially clairvoyant, and even if it is not dense enough for normal sight, you will see something. He added a little more I could not catch. The fact was that the curiously strong vibrating atmosphere surrounding his person somewhat confused my senses. It was the result, of course, of his intense concentration of mind and forces, and pervaded the entire camp and all the persons in it. And as I watched the canvas shake and heard it boom and flap, I heartily welcomed it, for it was also protective. At the back of Sangree's tent stood a thin group of pine trees, but in front and at the sides the ground was comparatively clear. The flap was wide open, and any ordinary animal would have been out and away without the least trouble. Dr. Silence led me up to within a few feet, evidently careful not to advance beyond a certain limit, and then stooped down and signaled me to do the same. And looking over his shoulder, I saw the interior lit faintly by the spectral light reflected from the fog, and the dim blot upon the balsam boughs and blankets signifying Sangree, while over him and round him and up and down him flew the dark mass of something on four legs, with pointed muzzle and sharp ears plainly visible against the tent sides, and the occasional gleam of fiery eyes and white fangs. I held my breath and kept utterly still, inwardly and outwardly, for fear, I suppose, that the creature would become conscious of my presence. But the distress I felt went far deeper than the mere sense of personal safety, or the fact of watching something so incredibly active and real. I became keenly aware of the dreadful psychic calamity it involved. The realization that Sangree lay confined in that narrow space with this species of monstrous projection of himself, that he was wrapped there in the cataleptic sleep, all unconscious that this thing was masquerading with his own life and energies, added a distressing touch of horror to the scene. In all the cases of John's silence, and they were many and often terrible, no other psychic affliction has ever, before or since, impressed me so convincingly with the pathetic impermanence of the human personality, with its fluid nature, and with the alarming possibilities of its transformations. Come, he whispered, after we had watched for some minutes the frantic efforts to escape from the circle of thought and will that held it prisoner. 
Come a little farther away while I release it. We moved back a dozen yards or so. It was like a scene in some impossible play, or in some ghastly and oppressive nightmare from which I should presently awake to find the blankets all heaped up upon my chest. By some method undoubtedly mental, but which, in my confusion and excitement, I failed to understand, the doctor accomplished his purpose, and the next minute I heard him say sharply under his breath, It's out. Now watch. At this very moment, a sudden gust from the sea blew aside the mist, so that a lane opened to the sky, and the moon, ghastly and unnatural as the effect of stage limelight, dropped down in a momentary gleam upon the door of Sangree's tent, and I perceived that something had moved forward from the interior darkness, and stood clearly defined upon the threshold. And at that same moment, the tent ceased its shuddering and held still. There in the doorway stood an animal, with neck and muzzle thrust forward, its head poking into the night, its whole body poised in that attitude of intense rigidity that perceives the spring into freedom, the running leap of attack. It seemed to be about the size of a calf, leaner than a mastiff, yet more squat than a wolf, and I could swear that I saw the fur ridged sharply upon its back. Then its upper lip slowly lifted, and I saw the whiteness of its teeth. Surely no human being ever stared as hard as I did in those next few minutes. Yet the harder I stared, the clearer it appeared the amazing and monstrous apparition. For after all, it was Sangree, and yet it was not Sangree. It was the head and face of an animal, and yet it was the face of Sangree, the face of a wild dog, a wolf, and yet his face. The eyes were sharper, narrower, more fiery, yet they were his eyes. His eyes run wild. The teeth were longer, whiter, more pointed, yet they were his teeth, his teeth grown cruel. The expression was flaming, terrible, exultant, yet it was his expression carried to the border of savagery. His expression, as I had already surprised it more than once, only dominant now, fully released from human constraint, with the mad yearning of a hungry and importunate soul. It was the soul of Sangree, the long-suppressed, deeply loving Sangree, expressed in a single and intense desire, pure utterly and utterly wonderful. Yet at the same time came the feeling that it was all an illusion. I suddenly remembered the extraordinary changes the human face can undergo in circular insanity, when it changes from melancholia to elation, and I recalled the effect of hashish, which shows the human countenance in the form of the bird or animal to which in character it most approximates, and for a moment I attributed this mingling of Sangree's face with a wolf to some kind of similar delusion of the senses. I was mad, deluded, dreaming, the excitement of the day, and this dim light of stars and bewildering mist combined to trick me. I had been amazingly imposed upon by some false wizardry of the senses. It was all absurd and fantastic. It would pass. And then, sounding across this sea of mental confusion like a bell through a fog, came the voice of John Silence bringing me back to a consciousness of the reality of it all. Sangree, in his double. And when I looked again more calmly, I plainly saw that it was indeed the face of the Canadian, but his face turned animal, yet mingled with the brute expression, a curiously pathetic look, like the soul seen sometimes in the yearning eyes of a dog, the face of an animal shot with vivid streaks of the human. The doctor called to him softly under his breath. 
Sangri, Sangri, you poor afflicted creature, do you know me? Can you understand what it is you're doing in your body of desire? For the first time since its appearance, the creature moved. Its ears twitched, and it shifted the weight of its body onto the hind legs. Then lifting its head and muzzle to the sky, it opened its long jaws and gave vent to a dismal and prolonged howling. But when I heard that howling rise to heaven, the breath caught and strangled in my throat, and it seemed that my heart missed a beat, for though the sound was entirely animal, it was at the same time entirely human. But more than that, it was the cry I had so often heard in the western states of America, where the Indians still fight and hunt and struggle. It was the cry of the redskin. The Indian blood, whispered John Silence, when I caught his arm for support, the ancestral cry. And that poignant, beseeching cry, that broken human voice, mingling with the savage howl of the brute beast, pierced straight to my very heart, and touched there something that no music, no voice passionate or tender of man, woman, or child, has ever stirred before or since for one second into life. It echoed away among the fog and the trees, and lost itself somewhere out over the hidden sea. And some part of myself, something that was far more than the mere act of intense listening, went out with it, and for several minutes I lost consciousness of my surroundings, and felt utterly absorbed in the pain of another stricken fellow creature. Again the voice of John Silence recalled me to myself. Hark, he said aloud, hark! His tone galvanized me afresh. We stood listening side by side. Far across the island, faintly sounding through the trees and brushwood, came a similar answering cry, shrill, yet wonderfully musical, shaking the heart with a singular wild sweetness that defies description. We heard it rise and fall upon the night air. It's across the lagoon, Dr. Silence cried, but this time in full tones that paid no tribute to caution. It's Joan. She's answering him. Again the wonderful cry rose and fell, and that same instant the animal lowered its head and muzzle to earth set off on a swift easy canter that took it off into the mist and out of our sight like a thing of wind and vision. The doctor made a quick dash to the door of Sangree's tent, and following close at his heels, I peered in and caught a momentary glimpse of the small shrunken body lying upon the branches, but half covered by the blankets, the cage from which most of the life, and not a little of the actual corporeal substance, had escaped into that other form of life and energy, the body of passion and desire. By another of those swift, incalculable processes, which at this stage of my apprenticeship I failed often to grasp, Dr. Silence reclosed the circle about the tent and body. Now it cannot return until I permit it, he said, and the next second was off at full speed into the woods, with myself close behind him. I had already had some experience of my companion's ability to run swiftly through a dense wood, and now I had the further proof of his power almost to see in the dark. For once we left the open space about the tents, the trees seemed to absorb all the remaining vestiges of light, and I understood that special sensibility that is said to develop in the blind, the sense of obstacles. And twice as we ran, we heard the sound of that dismal howling drawing nearer and nearer to the answering faint cry from the point of the island whither we were going. Then suddenly the trees fell away, and we emerged hot and breathless upon the rocky point where the granite slabs ran bare into the sea. It was like passing into the clearness of open day. 
and there, sharply defined against sea and sky, stood the figure of a human being. It was Joan. I saw at once that there was something about her appearance that was singular and unusual, but it was only when we had moved quite close that I recognized what caused it. For while the lips wore a smile that lit the whole face with a happiness I had never seen there before, the eyes themselves were fixed in a steady, sightless stare as though they were lifeless and made of glass. I made an impulsive forward movement, but Dr. Silence instantly dragged me back. No, he cried, don't wake her. What do you mean? I replied aloud, struggling in his grasp. She's asleep. It's somnambulistic. This shock might injure her permanently. I turned and peered closely into his face. He was absolutely calm. I began to understand a little more, catching, I suppose, something of his strong thinking. Walking in her sleep, you mean? He nodded. She's on her way to meet him. From the very beginning, he must have drawn her irresistibly. But the torn tent and the wounded flesh? When she did not sleep deep enough to enter the somnambulistic trance, he missed her. He went instinctively and in all innocence to seek her out, with the result, of course, that she woke and was terrified. Then in their heart of hearts they love, I asked finally. John Silence smiled his inscrutable smile. Profoundly, he answered, and as simply as only primitive souls can love. If only they both came to realize that in their normal waking states, his double will cease these nocturnal excursions. He will be cured and at rest. The words had hardly left his lips when there was a sound of rustling branches on our left, and the very next instant the dense brushwood parted where it was darkest, and out rushed the swift form of an animal at full gallop. The noise of feet was scarcely audible, but in that utter stillness I heard the heavy panting breath and caught the swish of the low bushes against its sides. And it went straight towards Joan, and as it went, the girl lifted her head and turned to meet it. And at the same instant, a canoe that had been creeping silently and unobserved round the inner shore of the lagoon emerged from the shadows and defined itself upon the water with a figure at the middle thwart. It was Maloney. It was only afterwards I realized that we were invisible to him where we stood against the dark background of trees. The figures of Joan and the animal he saw plainly, but not Dr. Silence and myself standing just beyond them. He stood up in the canoe and pointed with his right arm. I saw something gleam in his hand. Stand aside, Joan girl, or you'll get hit, he shouted, his voice ringing horribly through the deep stillness. And the same instant, a pistol shot cracked out with a burst of flame and smoke, and the figure of the animal, with one tremendous leap into the air, fell back into the shadows and disappeared like a shape of night and fog. Instantly then, Joan opened her eyes, looked in a dazed fashion about her, and pressing both hands against her heart, fell with a sharp cry into my arms that were just in time to catch her. And an answering cry sounded across the lagoon, thin, wailing, piteous. It came from Sangree's tent. Fool, cried Dr. Silence, you've wounded him. And before we could move or realize quite what it meant, he was in the canoe and halfway across the lagoon. Some kind of similar abuse came in a torrent from my lips, too, though I cannot remember the actual words, as I cursed the man for his disobedience and tried to make the girl comfortable on the ground. But the clergyman was more practical. He was spreading his coat over her and dashing water on her face. It's not Joan I've killed at any rate, I heard him mutter as she turned and opened her eyes and smiled faintly up in his face. 
I swear the bullet went straight. Joan stared at him. She was still dazed and bewildered, and still imagined herself with the companion of her trance. The strange lucidity of the sonambulist still hung over her brain and mind, though outwardly she appeared troubled and confused. Where has he gone to? He disappeared so suddenly, crying that he was hurt, she asked, looking at her father as though she did not recognize him. And if they've done anything to him, they've done it to me too, for he is more to me than... Her words grew vaguer and vaguer as she returned slowly to her normal waking state. And now she stopped altogether, as though suddenly aware that she had been surprised into telling secrets. But all the way back, as we carried her carefully through the trees, the girl smiled and murmured Sangri's name, and asked if he was injured, until it finally became clear to me that the wild soul of the one had called to the wild soul of the other, and in the secret depths of their beings the call had been heard and understood. John Silence was right. In the abyss of her heart, too deep at first for recognition, the girl loved him, and had loved him from the very beginning. Once her normal waking consciousness recognized the fact, they would leap together like twin flames, and his affliction would be at an end, his intense desire would be satisfied, he would be cured. And in Sangree's tent, Dr. Silence and I sat up for the remainder of the night. This wonderful and haunted night that had shown us such strange glimpses of a new heaven and a new hell, for the Canadian tossed upon his balsam leaves with high fever in his blood, and upon each cheek a dark and curious contusion showed, throbbing with severe pain, although the skin was not broken, and there was no outward and visible sign of blood. Maloney shot straight, you see, whispered Dr. Silence to me after the clergyman had gone to his tent, and had put Joan to sleep beside her mother, who, by the way, had never once awakened. The bullet must have passed clean through the face, for both cheeks are stained. He'll wear these marks all his life, smaller, but always there. They're the most curious scars in the world, these scars transferred by repercussion from an injured double. They'll remain visible until just before his death, and then, with the withdrawal of the subtle body, they will disappear finally. His words mingled in my dazed mind with the sighs of the troubled sleeper and the crying of the wind about the tent. Nothing seemed to paralyze my powers of realization so much as these twin stains of mysterious significance upon the face before me. It was odd, too, how speedily and easily the camp resigned itself again to sleep and quietness, as though a stage curtain had suddenly dropped down upon the action and concealed it. And nothing contributed so vividly to the feeling that I had been a spectator of some kind of visionary drama as the dramatic nature of the change in the girl's attitude. Yet, as a matter of fact, the change had not been so sudden and revolutionary as appeared. Underneath, in those remoter regions of consciousness where the emotions, unknown to their owners, do secretly mature, and owe thence their abrupt revelation to some abrupt psychological climax, there can be no doubt that Joan's love for the Canadian had been growing steadily and irresistibly all the time. It had now rushed to the surface so that she recognized it, that was all. And it has always seemed to me that the presence of John's silence, so potent, so quietly efficacious, produced an effect, if one may say so, of a psychic forcing house, and hastened incalculably the bringing together of these two wild lovers. In that sudden awakening had occurred the very psychological climax required 
to reveal the passionate emotion accumulated below. The deeper knowledge had leaped across and transferred itself to her ordinary consciousness, and in that shock the collision of the personalities had shaken them to the depths and shown her the truth beyond all possibility of doubt. He's sleeping quietly now, the doctor said, interrupting my reflections. If you will watch alone for a bit, I'll go to Maloney's tent and help him to arrange his thoughts. He smiled in anticipation of that arrangement. He'll never quite understand how a wound on the double can transfer itself to the physical body, but at least I can persuade him that the less he talks and explains tomorrow, the sooner the forces will run their natural course now to peace and quietness. He went away softly, and with the removal of his presence, Sangree, sleeping heavily, turned over and groaned with the pain of his broken head. And it was in the still hour just before the dawn, when all the islands were hushed, the wind and sea still dreaming, and the stars visible through clearing mists, that a figure crept silently over the ridge and reached the door of the tent where I dozed beside the sufferer, before I was aware of its presence. The flap was cautiously lifted a few inches, and in looked Joan. That same instant Sangree woke and sat up on his bed of branches. He recognized her before I could say a word, and uttered a low cry. It was pain and joy mingled, and this time all human. And the girl, too, was no longer walking in her sleep, but fully aware of what she was doing. I was only just able to prevent him springing from his blankets. Joan! Joan! he cried, and in a flash she answered him, I'm here. I'm with you always now. And had pushed past me into the tent and flung herself upon his breast. I knew you would come to me in the end, I heard him whisper. It was all too big for me to understand at first, she murmured, and for a long time I was frightened. But not now, he cried louder. You don't feel afraid now of, of anything that's in me. I fear nothing, she cried. Nothing, nothing. I led her outside again. She looked steadily into my face, with eyes shining and her whole being transformed. In some intuitive way, surviving probably from the somnambulism, she knew or guessed as much as I knew. You must talk tomorrow with John Silence, I said gently, leading her toward her own tent. He understands everything. I left her at the door, and as I went back softly to take up my place of sentry again with the Canadian, I saw the first streaks of dawn lighting up the far rim of the sea behind the distant islands. And as though to emphasize the eternal closeness of comedy to tragedy, two small details rose out of the scene and impressed me so vividly that I remember them to this very day. For in the tent where I had just left Joan, all a-quiver, with her new happiness, there rose plainly to my ears the grotesque sounds of the boatswain's mate heavily snoring, oblivious of all things in heaven or hell, and from Maloney's tent, so still was the night, where I looked across and saw the lanterns glow, there came to me through the trees the monotonous rising and falling of a human voice that was beyond question the sound of a man praying to his God. End of Case 6 Camp of the Dog Part 7 Recording by Alan Winterout Audio.boomcoach.com